You're listening to Meeting Pod, the podcast powered by Meeting Place, the premier magazine and news source for the meat and poultry processing industry, and Alt Meat Magazine, the only business information resource for the exploding alternative meat industry. Hi, I'm Julie Larson Brisher, Science and Technology Editor for Meeting Place Magazine. Welcome to Episode 12 of Meeting Pod, where we're talking meat cookery, meat education, and meat science with Jess Priles, live fire cook, author, and professional hardcore carnivore. An Australian native who now calls Austin, Texas home, Jess has been called the female Ron Swanson, the goddess of all things that have previously mooed, and a maven of all things meaty and their monikers well-earned. Jess is a respected authority on live fire cooking and barbecue with a particular expertise in beef and smoked meats. She's also the co-founder of the Australasian Barbecue Alliance, is a regular on Food Network, and has judged numerous prestigious barbecue competitions worldwide. She is also the creator of the internationally acclaimed line of meat and steak seasoning rub, Hardcore Carnivore, a cookbook of the same name, and she designed the JP Signature Edition Pits and Spits Smoker. Many in our Meeting Place community will know Jess from her guest speaking engagements at Texas A&M's Brisket Camp and American Meat Science Association conferences, or from her annual Beef Masterclass held in conjunction with the Texas Beef Council. Currently, Jess is pursuing a graduate certificate in meat science at Iowa State University, and today we'll dig into how a meat education is helping encourage and educate folks to, as Jess likes to say, cook meat like they mean it. Welcome to Meeting Pod, Jess. We're delighted to have you as a guest today. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Great. Well, so tell me, how did you get into the meat world and live fire cooking as a career? And do you have a specific mission or passion that drives you? My story is pretty simple in that I love to eat meat, so it's not too much of a stretch to imagine that I then was kind of curious to get better about cooking it. But it was actually a trip to Texas about 12 or 13 years ago that really was the catalyst for things. I came, you have to eat barbecue when you're here, so I'm originally from Melbourne, Australia, and I tasted a beef rib for the first time, and it was so a smoked beef rib. It was such an amazing, life-changing kind of flavor experience that it just reminded me of like the best part of the lamb cutlet that my mom used to broil, you know, get all crispy, but the whole thing was like that. And so in wanting to eat more barbecue, I got curious about how it was made. And then that kind of forced me to learn about, well, hang on a second. Why is a brisket in Australia nothing like a brisket in Texas? Why? How is it possible that the same cut from the same animal is so different? Because I didn't come from an agricultural background. I certainly didn't come from a, a sciences or meat science background. And so I kind of set about figuring all that out. And as I was trying to find these answers, you know, cooking is very synonymous with just understanding meat in general. And I, you know, was now living in Texas by that stage. It was like, time to it's time to learn to cook this properly so i bought a charcoal grill and i bought an offset smoker which are the two sort of most difficult arguably you know apparatus to run and i just taught myself and what i was learning from sort of my delving into the meat community was really serving me well in the kitchen and just understanding that it's not as complicated as i thought it was 
and here we are, flash forward, you know, a whole seasoning company later. And <laughs> that's what we're doing. What then pursued, I mean, I know that you visited ranches, you've done, you've gone to processing facilities and, you know, harvesting facilities. That was part of your meat education, right? That you, you learned by visiting ranches and so, and even butcher shops. So yeah, what made you turn from that kind of life experience or life university to actually pursuing a certificate at university level? So I had a degree in communications and hilariously, I was an absolutely humanities student all through high school. My mom still laughs about it today that, you know, now I'm I'm a science grad student, but I had sort of just cobbled together this informal education from anything that I could. So people obviously in the meat industry are really great about wanting to share their story with you and wanting to share what they do. So it wasn't hard to find people who were like, yeah, come check out our farm. Let me talk to you about a beef. Let me talk to you about this feedlot. Come tour the feedlot. And and as soon as you meet people within the industry, you get this access because as long as they know that you're a friend, not foe, they're happy to share. So I was piecing together all this information and kind of, I had completed Beef 101 and 706 at Texas A&M through the help of the Texas Beef Council who were like, did you know there are these courses that anyone can do? And they're sort of one to two day courses. And I kind of took it upon myself in, as well as all the recipe testing, it's really important to me as a meat advocate to be very accurate in my information. And also, I think instead of just throwing pictures up on the internet, it just sort of serves everyone better to contribute something greater. And for me, that's helpful and correct information. And I was fascinated by things like, oh, meat sterile? Oh, I never really thought about why you can eat a steak rare, but that makes sense. And, you know, then I turn around and watch my husband eat hamburger meat raw. And I'm like, honey... Okay. So, you know, there are all these little things that we take for granted when you have to question them or you don't understand them that became more and more fascinating. And as I went on in my career, I kind of hit a wall with what else I could learn. I mean, there's always new people to visit and there's always new people to meet and information to get off personal stories. But I realized that I was doing things like talking about and and trying to read papers on cold shortening to understand like the impact of pH at time of rigor mortis. Cause I'm curious about what, how will this apply to my venison? And is that why some of this meat looks watery in the case? And I started kind of scratching into the real science of it, but I still had to really heavily rely on friends like Diana Clark, who's a meat scientist who works for certified Angus beef and the professors at A&M, Dr. Sable, Dr. Griffin would allow me to email them with questions and other great professors that I met through RMC, but I was becoming frustrated by not understanding the bigger picture because I still felt like I just had puzzle pieces. So I set about trying to find a more formal education for two reasons. One, for what I just mentioned, to really fill in a genuine desire to learn It wasn't until I was at this age that I really wanted to go to school. Like, I know what I want to learn. I know what I'm passionate about. This is what I want to learn. And also, I mean, to a much lesser extent, which I kind of hate to say, but it is a part of it. There are so many self-proclaimed experts on the internet now. Sometimes it's a gender bias. Sometimes it's just because people are not that nice. 
But I was also really fed up with people questioning. I knew I'd done a lot of research. I knew I knew more than the average meat influencer. I knew I'd taken the time to understand these concepts. But the idea of being able to say, oh, really? Okay, well, I guess you should tell, like, my meat science professor that taught me that, that I'm wrong then, because literally I'm studying this. So there's a sense of satisfaction in being able to kind of end the argument with that little one, like, I'm sorry, I'm studying it. So your opinion's nice, but I guess this makes me a person in the field. So sorry. Yeah, a subject matter expert always has to have that knowledge base. And right. That sounds like what you're getting. <laughs> well, what are what are some of the most important meat science concepts that you've learned or that you use in real life, you know, from the short courses you've taken either at Texas A&M or through your graduate certificate program at Iowa State, you know, and have you found that these concepts have benefited your career in business? I think so. My whole, especially my, so I have a pretty large social media following and it's built on the concept of if you build it, they will come. So it's a slow and steady wins the race. It's not jump on whatever the hottest trend is and just grow, grow, grow. And I should say as well that one of the reasons that the Iowa State course was fantastic for me is because I have two full-time jobs effectively, you know, running hardcore carnivore as, as a CEO and then managing what I do under the Jess Pryles name. So being able to do complete something online and the professors actually had to give me real life credit as prerequisites because I didn't have the technical science going in. So it was kind of amazing that everything aligned, but I think for me that understanding being able to answer a lot of people's questions. So putting myself out there in an expert context, I can now answer questions that come to me without just reading on a short subject and being able to speak to only that. I can sort of say, oh, look, you know, people ask about, is this safe to eat? Should I, you know, cook it this way? Do you think that it should be cut this way? It's been in my fridge for seven days. Can I put it in back seal now? And I can be a bit more confident about answering those sorts of questions, but I can't even think of it. It's such an all encompassing kind of blanket concept for me now that aside from picking out little pieces, like it even, it even bleeds into butchery, you know, understanding how to cut a top blade roast into flat irons, but then the science of being able to say, Hey, there's a thing called a Warner Bratzler shear force test, and I can prove to you that it's tender. It's not just perception. So like little things like that are, I guess, scientific aspects that I use every day. And then I get super nerdy. Like right now I'm trying to, to do more research into Piedmontese cattle and try and understand why they're making all these claims about being lean, but also being extremely tender. And traditionally we've been taught that tenderness still has a lot to do with marbling through the meat. So, you know, it really runs the gamut. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you're very consumer facing, you know, in your business. And would you say that in terms of meat quality attributes that consumers should look for in cuts of meat, you know, it, whether it's poultry or beef or pork, what would you say are the kind of quality attributes that are trending right now and and why? Are people looking for more marbling and the higher fat content, you know, sort of related to maybe the keto diet type of trend, right? Or 
is there certain prepping or cooking methods now that people are eating more at home and they're actually cooking or maybe learning or relearning how to cook during the pandemic? We definitely have seen a lot of trends of people looking back to comfort food more than ever. I can get extremely creative with recipes and the most popular ones will always be meatloaf, meatballs, you know, just can I make it better than mom made it? You know, that's what people are looking for when they search these things. I see through the lens of social media two really distinct groups. And it's still interesting because even though you feel like you can reach hundreds of thousands of people through social media, you're still in a very distinct cultural and interest group. One of the ways I know that, for example, is in my group, which is still several hundred thousand people large, when I post a medium rare steak, my safety group will unanimously tell me how amazing that steak looks. But once that post leaves the safety of the group, let's say it goes viral and I start reaching new people, you start to see a lot of that's raw. I wouldn't eat that. You can't eat that. And there's an entire kind of, you know, depending on your cultural group, how you perceive how you want your steak done. And so that's really interesting because I'm not exposed to that on a day-to-day basis. You know, for me, if I were dare to post a well-done steak on, on my channels, it would not bear well for me. But the two distinct groups that I see at the moment, I think, are defined as I've heard people call them meatheads. And I would call those the advanced people who are carnivores who are interested in meat. They are cooking at home. They might have bought a sous vide machine at home. They like going into their smaller butcher shops to discover secondary cuts because it makes them feel a bit more empowered. It makes them feel like they're sharing and being a bit more Columbus about what they're cooking. They like trying different rubs. They like trying different cooking apparatus. And they are also the ones who are happy to buy a lot of these smaller, especially Wagyu and Wagyu crossbreeds that are being marketed to them. And Prime is king. Prime and Wagyu amongst this group is king for sure. I think that it's nearly at the stage where they're eating so much prime. I think if you told people that it only accounts for 8% of the total total beef that's being harvested, they might be a little shocked because they make it seem like it's just completely accessible and very generic. The second group, I think, is going to be people who are happy to be carnivores who want to feel a little bit better about it. So either they've got that little meat paradox going on and they are attracted to marketing phrases like healthier, know your rancher, know where your meat comes from. And of course, I find that laughable because there's such incredible traceability in the whole food system, particularly where, you know, in Australia that you can literally trace it, trace it all the way back to the farm. And that doesn't have anything to do with quality. It doesn't speak to what happened to them on transport. It doesn't speak like there's so many things that go into that, but it makes them feel better. Oh yeah. Know where it comes from. Yeah. Hyper local. Yeah. Like my farmer's market vegetables. Yeah. And those people are also very enchanted with the idea of grass-fed, grass-finished. They're very taken with, again, the marketing terms of 
hormone-free, antibiotic-free, even if you explain to them that all beef is theoretically antibiotic-free by the time it actually reaches you. So they are looking specifically for meat that they think is better for them. And I see it a lot with like hardcore hunters as well, because hunting is a huge community online. So if they can't eat what they hunt, they're happy to eat these like organic, free-range, grass-fed, you know, all natural, which we know means nothing at all. So those are the two groups that I probably have the most exposure to in terms of watching people select their meat. But absolutely with the rise of keto, you know, as if people needed an excuse to like bacon any more than they did. But right. <laughs> I can't let this opportunity pass me by without picking your brain about some of your recipes, especially ones that appear in your cookbook, Hardcore Carnivore. First, how in the world did you come up with peanut butter and jelly wings? Yum. <laughs> I know. So you say yum, I say yum. There are some people that hear that title and think, ew, and I kind of understand that. But if you think about it, in Australia, we're exposed to a lot of Southeast Asian food, a lot of great different flavors. And a really amazing dish out of Indonesia is satay, which is made with a peanut sauce. And there are skewers, usually over live fire, usually chicken or pork. And then they have this great, and it's very sweet because... Everyone loves sweet. It's like the most unanimously enjoyed flavor out of sweet, salty, spicy. So it's a very sweet peanut sauce that is put on these charcoal grilled kebabs. So I started there and then I thought, you know what would be great if I could get some extra caramelization because I knew I was going to grill them. And what's the best thing to caramelize? Sugar. Then your brain goes jelly. Then it went peanut butter jelly. So it, it, when you track it back that way from a culinary perspective, it makes a lot of sense. But otherwise, it's a little weird. <laughs> well, it looks great. Like, I really want to try it. But also, well, now, let me ask you this. Like, when you create recipes, does any of your meat education science training come into play? Is there anything that you've learned from any of your courses that come into play and that you dial into now more because you know the meat science behind sort of product development in a way? <laughs> I like that culinary product development. It is. It's definitely allowed me to expose myself to more cuts and understand how they should be cooking. And I can also cook more confidently. I have a dry aging fridge at home that's you know, a bit of an experiment because the whole concept of dry aging is still a little bit like cowboy territory. But I can confidently now preach to use the whole thing because I know that even if I take the rind or the fat that's been exposed, I can render it because that render reaches a safe temperature. So I understand that concept of safe temperature and storage now. So I render the fat, roast the bones to make stock, which again are absolutely at boiling point when the stock is boiling. And so having that temperature understanding has helped me be able to do experiments like dry aging. I think for cooking, it's still pretty flavor driven. There's a lot of science behind kind of grilling as well, you know, and understanding the temperatures behind things and how they're going to react and even understanding the Maillard reaction, of course, which is everything to me. And 
that's actually helped me tremendously because in the past when you might have done a roast and been tempted to kind of do a crust on it because you saw this lovely crust in a magazine and then you can never figure out why the magazine is always perfectly brown and your roast is like and then you realize that they're totally cheating it because the instructions they've given you will never let you end up with what the picture is so i think that's one thing that food science has allowed me to do and that i'm very proud of which is the pictures that you see of my food are an accurate representation of what the recipe will get you. <laughs> right. Well, let me ask you, what is your favorite recipe that you've developed? I think, honestly, I don't know if it's so much as a recipe as a technique. And once I nailed the perfect way to cook steak, be it as thin as a skirt steak or as thick as a tomahawk, I just felt like, yes, I've got it. It happens every time I got the crust. And I naturally developed this method called JKF, which is just keep flipping, which has probably been done since caveman times. And I know other celebrity chefs over the years have touted it. And the idea is obviously to cook on an extremely hot surface and constantly flip as opposed to leaving it there and then turning it every seven or eight minutes to build a crust. But the idea being that as long as your surface is hot, you're drying out the surface of the steak which allows, you know, the absence of moisture allows Maillard to happen, but you're not overcooking the inside. And you end up with like that steakhouse sear because also most people don't realize that their ranges and stovetops at home are nowhere near as powerful as what restaurants are using. And, you know, you're always going to be pushing it uphill against that kind of advantage. So once I figured out that JKF works with everything, like it's hard for me to go out to a steakhouse now because <laughs> I've got a fridge full of some of the most amazing beef in the country. And arguably I cook it probably better than I have most places at restaurants. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Jess, for taking the time to be with Meeting Pod today. I'm feeling like taking the pellet grill out of winter storage and firing yes. it up now. I tell you what. Hey, girl. <laughs> and listeners, you can fire up your computers and visit Jess's website at jesspriles.com to access a variety of recipes and meat lovers guides, view videos on meat cooking techniques, and get the scoop on hardcore carnivore merch and subscribe to her blog. That's Jess, P-R-Y-L-E-S dot com. I also encourage you to visit MeaningPlace.com where you can access our online technical series to read about a range of science and technology topics written by our network of expert contributors and get access to the full episode list of Meeting Pod shows. Thanks again, Jess. I hope you'll join us for another podcast soon. Thank you. Thanks for spending time with Meeting Pod today. Remember to tune in on Mondays and get the inside track on the people and processes that power the protein supply. Be sure to subscribe to Meeting Pod on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Meeting Place and Altmate magazines on social media or visit our websites at meetingplace.com and alt-meet.net.